Happy Memorial Day weekend, and welcome to the finale of season one of the Democracy Dispatch podcast. My name is Justin Marsh, and I am the political outreach director at Vermont Conservation Voters. This is your weekly scoop on legislative action as we work to push forward environmental policies for Vermont. On today's show, Lauren Hurl and I recap the 2023 legislative session, and then we hear from the Speaker of the House, Jill Krowinski. We chat about her role as speaker, leadership's priorities, and her two decades worth of work in Vermont's political scene. We also chat about how she plans to spend her off time, especially during this non-election year. But let's get right into it. There's a lot to unpack. Let's bring Lauren Hurl, Executive Director of Vermont Conservation Voters, into the fold for an expanded edition of the Session Shakedown segment. The session has ended. We're at the halfway point of the biennium and the legislature wrapped up late in the evening on Friday, May 12th. The It's been a wild whirlwind. Um, and Lauren and I are here to give you the full report of where our priority policies have made it. But first, Lauren, uh, we've put out 18 enthralling episodes now of the Democracy Dispatch podcast. And I have to know, what was your favorite episode? Oh, that is too hard a question. Um, This was such a great project that you started up, Justin. And I think for me, my favorite part of the podcast has been, you know, as somebody who really is like living and breathing the policy stuff day to day, it's been so great to hear the stories of people. And I think you've done a really good job of finding both like a bunch of new lawmakers, uh, lawmakers that don't always get the spotlight, uh, in addition to a bunch of like the statewide officials and just really hearing like what motivated people to run for office and where did they come from and what values and perspectives are they bringing in that's shaping what kinds of policies are even getting talked about at the state house. Um, I think that's been my favorite part of the podcast so far. Yeah, I've been hearing that too. Um, And personally, I agree. I think, you know, we got a comment on our Instagram that someone really enjoyed the the lawmakers who are serving in their 20s. Um, And, you know, that's, that was really exciting, because that was uh, a topic near and dear to my heart, and one that hopefully we can bring back in season two. And, um, and yeah, I think that's, yeah, totally the statewide uh, elected, hearing from Charity Clark and Mike Pichak, our Attorney General and tr- State Treasurer, respectively, uh, was really exciting to get to know them a little bit more, um, as well as our Lieutenant Governor and our Secretary of State. We've had a lot of celebrities on yep. uh, the podcast this season, so very exciting. Well, thank you for allowing uh, me to start this up and <laughs> and for being a, uh, you know, a a very important participant in this every week as well. That's been fun. It has been. Um, And we started this whole podcast off with, you know, of course we had just released our common agenda and um, we've gave you a halftime show mid at the midpoint crossover. Um, And so just to give a little context every year, VCV, partners with over a dozen partner organizations to determine our collective environmental common agenda. And the 2023 common agenda was split into three major goals, 
The first was largely focused on climate action. It was outlining goals around cleaner and more affordable heat and the renewable energy standard. So Lauren, where did we end up on our proposed legislative solutions when it comes to climate action? Yes, good question. So obviously the, you know, one of the most high profile and often contentious bills of the session was one of our climate initiative priorities, the Affordable Heat Act. And, you know, this as we've been taking people through the ups and downs of that. At the end of the day, that bill ended up being enacted, um, overriding a gubernatorial veto, which is hard to do. Uh, but the legislature, you know, had the two thirds votes needed to do that. And what that's going to mean is that now the um, Public Utility Commission is going to kick off a multi-year process with stakeholder engagement, with a lot of analysis of how can we transition people to cleaner, cheaper ways to heat their homes? And so there's going to be a lot of opportunity for folks to get involved and make their voices heard. And then that will come back to the legislature in 2025. So the conversation will very much continue, um, but allowing that process to go forward so we can really dig into how we can help people transition off of fossil fuels is a really meaningful vote. And it was really hard fought. And there was a lot of leadership shown by legislators um, in trying to educate constituents about what the bill was and what it was not with a lot of misinformation flying. So I think it was really a testament to a lot of leaders, um, you know, taking taking a lot of heat for this, um, no pun intended, and, you know, willing to, I think, do the right thing, move this forward. Um, and I think we're going to have a lot of work to do collectively to get out and talk to Vermonters about, you know, what this bill does and what opportunity it really is going to present to people to, to help everyone get into uh, cleaner options. So that was like the, that was the big high profile one. Um, just a couple other climate stuff before uh, moving to other issues. Um, so there was a study that ended up getting enacted just in the final hours, day, day or two, um, looking at the renewable energy study. And um, it set up a legislative working group um, and basically authorized and asked for analysis of um, what expanding in-state and re regional renewable energy could mean for Vermont. So hopefully that will queue up a bigger conversation about our renewable energy standard for next year. Um, and then lastly, you know, we had called in the common agenda for um, continuing investments in clean transportation and climate initiatives. And, you know, there was some ongoing commitment. And in the last few years, there have been big investments in climate. Um, and so there wasn't really anything hugely noteworthy this year. It wasn't a big focus um, of the climate advocacy community. But I'm anticipating that next year, that's probably going to be a more robust conversation. And there was, you know, some progress, uh, things like funding that we needed for our environmental justice programs, some seed money for climate workforce uh, programs and and things like that. But definitely, I think that'll be a bigger focus, like I said, next year. Yeah. And just to note, too, all of uh, how the legislators voted throughout the, the session is available on our website via our environmental legislative scorecard. So if you're curious how your representatives and senators voted on our key issues, you can you can check out our scorecard. And we have all of that information there. 
Um, the second goal of the common agenda was to build more climate resilient communities by adopting smart growth housing strategies while better protecting our waters, forests, and wildlife. The big bills were S100, which was a housing bill that included provisions around smart growth, and H126, which was the 30 by 30 land and water conservation bill. Where uh, did we see these policies end up? Yeah, so both of the big housing uh, policies and the big biodiversity policies have been passed by the legislature, so they will soon get sent to Governor Scott and hopefully signed into law. Um, So the housing bill, S-100, that ended up having really strong support in both the House and Senate, votes like 135 to 11 in the House and 27 to 2 in the Senate. So really overwhelming support and ended up being essentially a suite of policies to encourage more density in our downtowns and village centers, um, had a number of investments and programs that will help get housing built. Uh, and, and it really struck, uh, in our view, a good balance of the smart growth principle of really focusing on encouraging development in uh, you know, well thought out places and allowing us to simultaneously address the housing crisis and protect our natural resources that make Vermont what it is. Um, So it was a good kind of pairing doing this big housing bill with a lot of investment, a lot of new policies that will make it easier to build housing in certain places, and also passing the 30 by 30 bill, H126, um, which set a target of conserving 30% of our lands and waters by 2030 and 50% by 2050, and is basically setting up an inventory so we can see where we are now, and then a plan for how do we actually get to meet those targets. So I think it was a good acknowledgement of we can do both. We can have housing and we can have a clean and healthy environment. Um, So that was great. And, you know, the last kind of area within this part of the common agenda and a climate resilient Vermont was looking at clean water. And it ended up not being as active a year on water issues. I'm guessing next year there's going to be a lot of focus on water issues. Um, a couple of things that did happen this year, there was a, a couple of studies that will, I think, just start important conversations. So one was looking at um, aquatic nuisances, so like invasive species in our lakes and ponds, for example, where right now the default is essentially to uh, put a bunch of toxic chemicals in to kill those Uh, invasive species off? And are there better and healthier ways to be addressing that? So that will be, I think, a really interesting, important conversation. Uh, And then also um, currently sitting on the calendar has passed the House, but would need Senate approval is a bill to uh, look at how well we're protecting riparian areas. So these are areas along streams. um, And are we you know, doing the right thing by protecting those areas, making sure we're not developing housing, for example, in flood prone areas along streams that, you know, we're anticipating more flooding as climate change continues to to worsen. So having both protecting those natural resources and also protecting people's property and, um, you know, health and safety. So that's going to be another one that hoping to see more action and conversation on next year. Yes, and the final goal in the common agenda was promoting a healthy Vermont 
including a healthy democracy. So this section includes bills restricting PFAS and harmful chemicals from personal care products, textiles, and athletic turf, the modernization of the bottle bill, and ranked choice voting. Each of those made it to varying endpoints leading up to the end of the session last week. But where will they be picked up next year? Yeah, so... All of these are works in progress, we'll say. (laughs) Um, So the bill restricting PFAS and other harmful chemicals from cosmetics and banning PFAS from textiles and turf, that bill unanimously passed the Senate, but then they did not end up having time to get into it on the House side. So that we're anticipating and we'll be pushing for hopefully quick action in the House uh, next January. the bill to modernize and expand the bottle bill uh, that has actually now passed the house and the senate but the senate made some changes to the house's version of the bill so it's been sent back to the house and they have to give final approval before the bill would be sent to the governor this is actually very similar to what happened last year where the bill got stalled out after it had actually passed both the house and senate also Um, So what we don't know is uh, the House and Senate have scheduled a veto session in late June, um, anticipating that the governor is likely to threaten some important priorities. And with a bill like that sitting on the calendar, um, ready for action, is the legislature going to take up any bills other than vetoes in that late June session or not? So a little bit... um, to be determined. And, you know, maybe we'll have to do a special veto session podcast (laughs) to do the final final of where things landed for 2023. Um, But that, you know, as of now, we're we're waiting on, you know, additional action from the legislature before that would go into effect. Um, And then similarly, ranked choice voting has now, you know, a bill passed the Senate to expand ranked choice voting, um, authorize it for presidential primaries starting in 2028, make it easier for uh, local governments to uh, implement ranked choice voting and um, starting a process to examine additional ranked choice voting opportunities for other offices. Um, So that bill passed the Senate and then it was sitting in the House committee and they did took a bunch of testimony on it in the House Government Operations Committee, uh, but that language ended up getting added to combined with another miscellaneous election bill that had a whole suite of provisions. And there were, you know, aspects of that that different legislators. So that got taken up in the Senate, which was this mix of the ranked choice voting, but also, uh, you know, expanding contributions that could made to be made to political parties. Uh, looking at um, allowing electronic voting for people overseas like military. And there were a host of issues that were raised uh, more about the provisions um, unrelated to ranked choice voting. And so that bill passed, uh, but only with a 16-14 vote um, and is now awaiting action in the House. So we'll have to kind of wait and see if those issues stay kind of lumped together or get decoupled um, and, you know, what opportunity there is, but we'll keep advocating that the ranked choice voting provisions at least should move uh, in and of themselves and our uh, great healthy democracy uh, policies that deserve to be taken up and moved. So that is where that suite of bills has landed. 
Yeah, it would be nice to see those maybe uh, split up. It's <laughs> that was a last minute um, morphing that had occurred. Um, but, you know, Lauren, it was really nice to hear you say that you hope the podcast will be back for the veto session. And I think that that is certainly our plan is to bring back the podcast for specials here and there throughout um, between now and January. So um, I'm That's sure so we'll make your dreams come true. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> It's too long. Otherwise, can't wait till January. Yeah. Well, rounding out this conversation, uh, were there any other major policies this year that caught your attention that did not have direct environmental implications? Yeah, I think, you know, I think one of the other big stories of the year um, that, you know, wasn't on our priority list, but a big concern to a lot of Vermonters was um, child care and what the legislature uh enacted really sweeping childcare legislation, making massive investments in, you know, shoring up that essential service. And so I think that will be like one of the big stories of the year is that is a huge win. Um, Another thing that kind of ended the session that was a challenge that lawmakers were working through. uh, So the budget ended up uh, becoming a little bit embroiled in a couple issues one, there was a veto threat by Governor Scott because the legislature, you know, normally in the course of doing business, the legislature every couple of years increases fees to uh, just sync them up with inflation. And that has not happened under the Scott administration. And so the legislature um, opted to increase some fees um, to, you know, help actually fund the programs, because if you don't increase the fees, you're basically shrinking government over time because everything gets more expensive. So you can do less with the same amount of money. Um, So the governor has threatened to veto the budget uh, due to this and some other disagreements. Um, Meanwhile, there was a lot of concern at the end of the session about the end that's coming soon to an emergency housing program that was started during the pandemic where people were housed in hotels and motels. And there was a call from a number of legislators to, um, although, you know, not a majority of legislators, but uh, there was a lot of concern about the fact that there didn't seem to be a transition plan for uh, getting people who are currently in this program to make sure that they're going to have somewhere to go once the program ends. And so there ended up being only 90 votes in support of the budget when you need 100 to override a veto. So that will be certainly a robust conversation of, you know, what's what's happening with that program? Um, how are we just helping the most vulnerable in our communities? Are we getting people the, the services and, um, you know, housing that they need? And, you know, as someone serving on the Montpelier City Council, you know, we talk a lot about how um, we're helping the unhoused population and the implications for our community. And so, you know, I, I'm very concerned about the end of this program and what it's going to mean for communities like Montpelier and, and all over the state and for, you know, what, how are we helping and supporting these people who are currently in this program? So I'll be, I'll be watching that with bated breath of what, what can be done to um, kind of ease that transition if that program is ending, which it is slated to, then, you know, what does it look like for people? So that, you know, was a very robust conversation. And I think over the next couple of weeks, as they figure out, okay, how do you line up the votes to override a veto? Because we need a budget to fund every government program. You know, what does that look like? And, you know, how do they line up the votes to get a budget in place? And hopefully, you know, address some of these concerns about how we're helping 
some of the most vulnerable people in our communities. So with that, be very uh, interested to talk with uh, speaker Jill Krawinski about, you know, what was a year of some massive wins like the Affordable Heat Act, huge housing bill, child care, and some of these, you know, challenges that they faced and, you know, what these big issues mean for uh, the lives of Vermonters. So let's transition to that conversation now. Jill Krowinski of Burlington has been the Vermont Speaker of the House since January 2021, becoming the 92nd Speaker and only the fourth female. She was appointed to the House of Representatives in 2012 by Governor Shumlin and was re-elected each biennium following. Krowinski was elected House Majority Leader in 2017. She is the former Executive Director of Emerge Vermont, which works to increase the number of Democratic women in public office, as well as a former VP at Planned Parenthood of Northern New England. Today, she joins me to wrap up the 2023 legislative session and the first season of VCV's Democracy Dispatch podcast. Welcome, Speaker Krowinski, and thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for inviting me. I'm excited to have our conversation together today. Yes, we too. And it's the finale. So it's celebratory. And, you know, there's been a lot of hard work. Um, While you mentioned that the session is wrapped up, one could say the bow and the gift tag will be added once the veto session occurs later in June. Uh, What are the most proud and pleased, what were you most proud and pleased to see pass your chamber this year? And do you anticipate some of your priorities will be back up for action in the veto session? Oh, such great questions. So I, I am really proud of the work that we did this legislative session. You know, going into it, um, there was clear consensus of what Vermonters um, were telling us we need more of. We need more affordable housing in this state in every corner. We need access to affordable child care. We need more support with workforce development. Uh, we passed um, a lot of different and great programs to, with forgivable loans and grants and apprenticeships to help people have access and pass to, to different types of education to get them to the job um, that they want. And it's exciting to have that in our budget. Um, we did some really great work on gun safety, suicide prevention, and um, one of the things that um, it got some news coverage, but I think it's really important to note is that we, um, you know, after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, I'm really proud of the work that we did together as a state uh, passing the constitutional amendment to enshrine reproductive rights in our state. And uh, with the attacks that are happening across the country, I th- we thought it was really important to make sure that we were doing everything we could uh, to protect um, people's reproductive rights and gender affirming care. And so we did that with two different fi- bills called the SHIELD bills that protect people uh, and providers uh, from a legal perspective and, uh, and a healthcare uh, medical license perspective. And so really proud to have that work done. Uh, There were some things that didn't get across the finish line this year, like paid family and medical leave insurance. And we're going to be working on that over the summer and fall um, so that we can start and take up that conversation uh, back again in January. Awesome. And and you'll be using the veto session primarily just to focus on any bills that Governor Scott vetoes, correct? 
Yes, the veto session uh, will give us uh, time to take action on those vetoes. Um, and I think while we're there, there may be some um, other bills that were, you know, waiting to get sent to the gov or we ran out of time that may still move. Um, but our primary focus is um, going to be those vetoes. Excellent. Yeah. And you didn't mention the Affordable Heat Act, but I know we'll talk about that. <laughs> I was saving that because I know we're going to dive into that and other really important bills like the bottle bill and 30 by 30. Absolutely. Yeah. So obviously the Affordable Heat Act was one of our, our biggest bills this season. Um, and, you know, there's now the legislative check back in 2025. So it's mm -hmm. the, the discourse and the conversation is going to be alive for years to come, I'm sure. Um, but putting that actual, we've talked at length with about that policy and we had Representative Stebbins to do an entire episode on it a few oh, episodes back. Great. It was great. Our most popular episode of the season. Yeah. I bet. I bet. <laughs> yes. Um, but putting that policy aside, what other, you know, you mentioned the bottle bill in 30 by 30. Um, so what are the environmental policies that you find the most pressing from your perspective that the Vermont legislature still needs to address? Well, you know, I think the renewable energy standard, um, which the goal of that is to uh, achieve 100% renewable energy um, in our state, uh, we worked really hard on that bill this session and um, the committee energy and environment environment and energy committee um, had some really other big bills that they were tackling like the affordable heat and the housing bill so uh, it didn't get across the line but the study did and I think that the study is going to be really important for that work to happen over the summer and fall so we can take that back up uh, that's really important and the bottle bill, I think, is also really important. It's been decades since we've updated um, our laws around that. And it's important that we're increasing recycling and doing more in, in the environment that way. And I also, um, one issue that has been uh, close to my heart and one of the first bills I worked on when I started in the legislature was around uh, chemicals and personal care products. And for years, we have been um, tackling, you know, different uh, chemical by chemical. Uh, we've been doing a lot around PFAS this year. I hope to do more on that as well, um, because these toxic chemicals um, are, are such a public health issue, and um, we are paying a high we are paying a high price for that. And so, uh, I know we passed the bill this year that uh, expanded access to um, health insurance coverage for um, for firefighters who have been exposed to some toxic chemicals in their line of work um, and they didn't have health insurance to cover those. And so that was a really, you know, that was a, a quiet bill that went through the process, but I think it's a really important one. So that area is, to, is um, one that is really important to me to continue to work on. Well, that is music to my ears. Uh, S25, I'm very hopeful that will be a priority for the Human Services Committee in the House starting in January. Mm -hmm. um, as And yeah, that's a, it's a great bill that I think is super important. And hopefully, maybe the House will even expand some of the products that um, are banned before sending it back to the Senate for concurrence. But looking back to uh, this last January, uh, this was the beginning the, the first beginning as a, of a biennium as speaker for you of an all in-person house. So what was that like compared to 
um, the prior biennium, which was either partially or all remote due to COVID-19. Oh my goodness, it made such a difference. And, you know, I, I'll say that governing on Zoom was, um, <laughs> felt, uh, it was quite the, the journey and experience. Um, was, it was very difficult, um, but it was important that we were on Zoom and we were being safe. Um, but then uh, the, the feeling of being in the chamber, gaveling in for the first time and seeing all you know, 150 of us in a room ready to get to work, um, being able to see people to be hanging out, working in committee rooms, um, making connections. It was really hard for, for people to uh, form relationships when you're online. Um, and that's not only between members, but with, you know, the public and advocates, it was just so much harder. And so it was um, so fantastic at the, at, to have such a great successful session and to gavel out and, and, and then be able to hug people as opposed to like hit end Zoom and, and be like, okay, that, that was it. Um, so it, it, was, it was really um, incredible. I'm glad we're back. Yeah, I can imagine it was it was so different. Just the the energy that you can experience just being in the room is you know nothing compares to that. Uh, certainly mm-hmm. not a screen full of uh, faces. <laughs> but, right, right. Thinking, right exactly. um, also of the wave of new legislators this year, it was historic. Um, so many new legislators, almost fifty, I believe, were sworn in mm-hmm. to represent their communities in the state house. What uh, has it been like with so many new lawmakers this year? Uh, yes, we had 50 new lawmakers and we had 10 new committee chairs. So there was lots of um, lots of turnover in this election. And I will say that our group of new members, they're just tremendous. Um, they have brought so much from, um, from their communities and their voices into the chamber. And, you know, there were um going into the session you know we were hearing oh boy 50 what is like what's that going to be like and it was great and i think we're all um like i said we're glad to be back in the building we're glad to be um uh just like being able to get to work together in person and they were um pivotal on a lot of these important bills and i was really proud you know our override on the affordable heat act was 107 yes votes um that is that is a big deal (laughs) and so uh really really proud of our new group of new members yes quite impressive i would say it's it was really lovely to get to know so many of them as well and Mm -hmm. um yeah, I wanna I wanna backtrack a little bit and have you share with listeners a bit about your background because it's I found really quite interesting. So you moved to Vermont right out of college when you landed a job working to elect Windsor County Democrats in 2002, and then you've continued working in Vermont politics from there. You've worked with the Vermont Democratic Party. You were aide to former Speaker Gay Symington in 2005 and field director to Peter Welch's congressional campaign in 2006. What inspired the original move to Vermont and what kept you here and so connected with our politics? Mm. So great question. Um, I was not at all, this was not my journey at all. I was all like fired up to go to graduate school for urban planning. And I had this gap of the space um, of, 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 and needed to find some some meaningful work in, to 
bridge that time. And uh, a friend of mine said, you better really work in politics. You would love it. It would be great for, you know, for getting ready for grad school. And, um, and when I started looking at some of the states that needed help, um, and we're looking for people, I saw Vermont. And immediately, um, I just knew that that needed to be my path because Vermont was going through an election trying to win back their house because they had lost it to the Republicans over civil unions. And um, marriage equality is an issue that's really important to me. And um, I just thought, this is, this is a state that shares my values and I need to go help. And so that's what motivated me to come here to Vermont. And what's kept me here is um, what we're doing to um, protect people's rights. And you'll see that theme, you know, starting with civil unions and marriage equality to reproductive rights. Um, and so, yeah, it's been quite the journey <laughs> for sure. Yeah, it's, Vermont's a pretty special place, really, when you, especially the progress we've made in the last few decades, of, for, for yeah. sure. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's remarkable to find someone who in their 40s, you know, let alone a female who has the experience in Vermont politics like you do, um, you know, so relatively so young when we think about the average age of, of legislators in the state. What has kept you engaged for this length of time? And do you see yourself continuing this work, even if you're not in an, elect, in an elected position? Yeah, so I, um, you know, in my former work at Planned Parenthood and Emerge, what uh, I have seen is there hasn't been a representation of the people in the room making the decisions, reflecting what our communities look like. And time and time again, I, w- I would be in meetings where I am the only woman <laughs> or there's, or maybe there's two or three of us. And I will say that over time, since I've served in the legislature, those dynamics have shifted and that's great. But I do think it's important to um, be mentoring and being in a spot where I can mentor and open the door to make sure that um, all people have access to that room and that, um, you can do it, you know, and I um, thank you for saying that I'm, I'm young on the young side. I appreciate that. Uh, but I do think, you know, we have uh, young women come in the state house all the time with different groups touring. And I always make a point um, to take them to the podium and have them stand there and say, this could be you someday. If you want this, like you can get here. And I want you to feel like what it's like to stand here. Um, and have make sure that you know what that feels like. And so that's a motivating drive for me is, um, is playing that role um, and, and being there to help mentor and get other women involved in politics, whether it's running for school board or house or higher office or PTO, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, you saying that and, and modeling for the young visitors of the state house that it's possible and a reality to them um, is is interesting. And also knowing that you are just the fourth female to to serve as speaker of the house and 
in my lifetime, as least to my awareness, you know, we've had Speaker Symington and Speaker Johnson, and now you. So I feel just honored to that the majority of the speakers that mm-hmm. I can name and think of have been have been women. So um, hopefully that is a positive trend uh, for the future as well. <laughs> I know, I know, but you know, I I think we we are an outlier here in Vermont. You know, we just. Uh, I, we went to a speakers conference, not that last summer was my first one because of COVID. There are only, I believe, in, unless something's changed recently, only five women serving as speaker in this country. Five. Oh, wow. Yeah, that is, yeah. That is an incredible stat. Yeah, so we have more work to do. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, I'm glad that Vermont is leading the way and that we have you serving as, as speaker for sure. Um, so, you know, this is, it's Memorial Day weekend. Um, I know you still have the veto session, but I'm curious, this is a non-election year. Um, so between now or the, let's say the veto session, between the veto session in January, um, how do you spend your summer in, in the fall? Like, do you get rest? Is it just back to work? <laughs> you know, every, um, every summer is, is in fall is different. Uh, I will be uh, definitely working and out on the road uh, during those months, uh, working on various things, uh, whether it's um, making sure that what we invested in our housing money is getting out there and is working. Um, We have a lot that we want to do around paid family and medical leave insurance. And I, you know, one thing that I um, love about this job that um it keeps me going and you know i get to to go visit different towns and meet people that i never would have had the chance to meet before and you know um i i spent time this some this last summer going around the state too and meeting um with different community leaders and visiting different places and it really helps um inform me like what Vermonters are hearing and what they need and what's working and what's not working. And um, it's just been truly um, such a gift to be able to have those conversations and to show up for people and to be there. Um, I hear often, you know, I can't remember like anyone ever coming here and having this kind of conversation with us and we really appreciate it. And so uh, that that will be my, that will be what we're working on this summer and fall. And I, which I am a runner, so I will be trying to get back um, into it and, and run in one or two races as well. That's awesome. I, you know, so you telling that story kind of reminded me of the conversation I had with uh, our state treasurer, Mike Pichek about the 251 mm-hmm. club. And yeah. then you saying that you're a runner. I know someone who is doing the 251 club, but instead of just visiting, they're doing, they're running in every single town. Oh, I love that. Yeah. It's a really neat twist on, on the, the, you know, mission of the club. So, um, yeah. Maybe that's something for your bucket list. <laughs> oh, to think about that. I love right. that idea. <laughs> so you sort of lined up that, you know, the work still continues in the off session. Um, and, you know, looking to next January, what are some of the measures that are most important to you that you're going to be uh, pushing to make it past the ultimate finish line of the of the close of the biennium? Well, we've, we've talked about some of them already on, you know, um, in this conversation with, with the res, with the bottle bill, with PFAS, with those policies are going to be really important to get across the finish line. And then we're going to have our continued work um, with paid family medical leave insurance and coming back um, to the budget. You know, the 
we've made some really um, critical investments in things that you know I've mentioned from housing to climate to childcare. And we need to make sure that what we're investing in is making a difference and is working. And so that will be, um, those are some of the things that we'll be working on and um, it'll be here before you know it, Justin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so getting the time now before that, yeah. and, uh, it's going to certainly be a big year. Um, hard to believe that we are already planning for 2024, but also it's the political world, as you know, always mm-hmm. looking a year or two or five or 10 down the road um, at what we can be doing. So um, well, I want to thank you so much for joining us today, Speaker Krowinski, and uh, we look forward to having you back maybe next season to chat with us more. Thank you so much. It's great to be here, and I'll definitely be back. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Now it's time for our stat of the week. $15 billion. That's the amount of tons of fossil fuels that are mined and extracted each year. Decarbonizing the world's economy will require an enormous amount of minerals like copper, lithium, nickel, and cobalt. Everything from electric vehicles to solar panels to transmission lines will require these raw materials. In some cases, mining these minerals has disastrous consequences for workers, indigenous communities, and the environment. This has led some clean energy skeptics to argue that decarbonization will be bad for both humans and the environment. But transitioning to clean energy will mean we no longer have to mine and extract vast quantities of fossil fuels each year. A clean energy transition will help to avoid the worst effects of climate change. It will save millions of lives currently lost to air pollution each year. And importantly, it will reduce the total amount of environmentally and socially harmful mining each year. In 2020, 7 million tons of transition minerals were mined globally for low-carbon energy, according to the International Energy Agency, or IEA. In order to limit warming to 2 degrees Celsius, we'll need to scale up that production to about 28 million tons per year. That is a lot of transition minerals, but we were curious how that compares to the mining and extraction of what we're doing today for fossil fuels economy. So every year, about 15 billion tons of fossil fuels are mined and extracted, which is 535 times more mining than a clean energy economy would require in the year 2040. Part of the reason for this massive difference in mining requirements is the fact that fossil fuel infrastructure is much less energy efficient than clean energy technology. Gas-powered cars are three times less efficient than electric vehicles, and gas furnaces are three to four times less efficient than heat pumps. Coal, oil, and gas all need to be transported long distances from mine or well to the source of combustion. A clean energy economy just requires much less energy than a fossil fuel economy. I want to thank Speaker Krowinski and, of course, Lauren Hurl for assisting me. And a huge thank you to all of the guests that we've had on this season. It's been very fun to do this podcast. And I want to also thank Lauren for believing in the podcast and um, 
the team at the Vermont Natural Resources Council and Vermont Conservation Voters for supporting the work. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and give us a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on social media too. On Twitter, we are at VoteGreenVT, YouTube and Instagram at VT Conservation Voters, and find us on Facebook as well. You can subscribe to our emails, see our legislative environmental scorecard, and learn more about our work and policies by visiting VermontConservationVoters.org. We will be back periodically between now and January 2024 with updates and special reports as we see fit, as stories break, and basically if we feel like it. Stay engaged with us and let me know if you've got topic ideas for future episodes or any past episodes that you really enjoyed that you would be willing to listen to a part two of. Email me at jmarsh at vermontconservationvoters.org to get in touch. Until then, thank you for listening. 